What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Well, thank you for inviting me here. I've heard about these, uh, these wonderful evenings and it's a great honour to be here tonight. Well, where people have said to me, did you realise how um, apposite your book was going to be? And my reply was, well, there's usually something. Um, a little while ago, it would have been Gaza that we would have been thinking about. But as we look at ISIL, or ISIS, whatever they're calling themselves this week, uh, we have, we, the, there's a certain sense of exasperation in some quarters. Why on earth can't the Muslims learn to separate religion and politics? This has become uh, so... Uh, the separation of these two things is now so deeply entrenched in our secular consciousness uh, that it's very difficult for us to understand that other cultures uh, don't have anything like this our view of religion. Um, our view of religion that sees it as a series of rituals and obligatory beliefs centering on a supernatural God um, and entirely separate from other activities. Um, The Oxford uh, Classical Dictionary firmly states that there is no word in either Greek or Latin that corresponds to the English religion or religious Um, the the, the rabbis in the Talmud had no conception of religion as an abstract, as an abstraction. Um, For them, in the Talmud, they wanted to bring the whole of life into the ambit of the sacred and would not have understood the secular at all. Um, The words that we translate uh, as religion in other languages almost invariably have a much wider and more inclusive uh, frame of reference. Deen in Arabic does not mean religion in that sense. It means an entire way of life. And dharma in Sanskrit um, is... um, It it, it includes law and uh, social life and commerce and politics as well as the service of the gods. So our view of religion, which was, not, which was an absolute revolution 
in the 18th century, late 17th, 18th century. Um, and it, it, uh, it was as, as innovative and as experimental as the market economy that we were developing at this time. <clears throat> Jesus would have had no idea of um, a secular uh, establishment. When he said, render unto Caesar what, the things that are Caesar's, uh, he was using the Greek, apodote, give it back. Um, in first century Palestine, nearly all the uprisings in Rome were uh, predicated on the belief that the whole of the land of Israel and its produce belonged to God and not to Rome. Um, and so when you take that view, uh, there's precious little to give back to Caesar. Um, and when it, Jesus went to, into the temple and cast out the money changers and, and, threw, uh, and threw over their temples, he was not, as is often said, uh, pleading for a more spiritual form of religion. Um, he was... Uh, the, the temple had long been the uh, site of the imperial administration for about 500 years in Palestine. And the tribute uh, collected in kind from the people was stored in the temple precincts. And hence, that's why Jesus called it a den of robbers. That doesn't mean to say that Jesus was really all about politics and not about religion. He would not have seen the two as entirely distinct. And the Quran's central message is not a doctrine. Uh, the Quran is very, very scathing about theology. It calls it zanna, self-indulgent guesswork, about matters that nobody can be certain about one way or the other, but which makes people quarrelsome and stupidly sectarian. Uh, the bedrock message of the Quran is that it's good to share your wealth fairly, that it's uh, wrong to hoard a private fortune. And uh, the, the, the aim of life is to build a just and decent society where vulnerable people are treated with equity and respect. It's a political message. Now, the, as, uh, but that doesn't mean that people were just using religion uh, because the effort to create a just and decent society demanded an eternal and ever-present transcendence of the self. Uh, if any of you have ever tried to live in a religious community, as I've had, you'll know it can be a very abrasive experience that chips away at your ego day by day. And that's chipping away at the ego, which is what holds us back from what we call Brahman or Tao or God, uh, is what, uh, is what it's, people are striving for in yoga and various other spiritualities. So it is a spiritual experience. The only religion or religious tradition that actually fits the modern profile of uh, religion as a separate activity is Protestant Christianity. Um, and hence, in the West, we often see Protestant Christianity as the kind of benchmark on which we sort of judge all others. So people are often telling me, well, Buddhism and Confucianism are not really religions. They're secular ideologies. Well, that's not something that either the Buddha or Confucius would have understood um, and certainly I would agree with them that neither Buddhism nor Confucianism is anything like Protestant Christianity. 
but Protestant Christianity is rather the oddball out here. And Protestant Christianity was, evolved, was a product, like our view of religion, of the early modern period. So let's just look quickly uh, at the Crusades. It's a great thing always brought up about how you know, the evils and the, the violent passions unleashed in, uh, by religion. <clears throat> well, um, certainly religious passions were involved. I'm not saying that, uh, that they are not in the picture at all. But they were equally, uh, they were equally political uh, issues at stake. The Pope was anxious to extend the power of the papacy into the East, uh, where the Eastern Church had uh, rejected the supremacy of the Pope. Um, and um, he was also using the Crusades as a, a way of declaring his superiority and supremacy over the secular rulers, uh, the kings, uh, who, who were supposed to be calling uh, wars, not the Pope. Um, and so um, when... But the interesting thing, in my view, about the Crusades is that when they arrived in Jerusalem, of course, you know, there was an absolute horrible massacre. The, the, by that time, the Crusaders were absolutely, they were half starved, half out of their minds. They'd had three years on the road, very little food, um, tra traumatic years. They were, they were not in their right mind, one can say that for them, but it was a terrible catastrophe. The, the, you can never take uh, ancient numbers um, uh, as, as accurate, but it's said that 30,000 people were killed uh, in two days. Now, you'd think, given that we think that Islam is a religion that uh, is so addicted to jihad, that this whole um, raison d'etre is the holy war, you'd think that after this terrific onslaught, they'd have been out in force uh, to eradicate the Crusaders. Um, and ISIL would have nothing on, on, on the wrath that would have been unleashed by the entire Muslim world as the third city in the holiest, holy in, in, in Islam is sacked. Not a bit of it. Uh, the, for the first 50 years, the Muslims simply sort of... They deplored what had happened. They'd never seen anything like this Western violence in their, the, the chroniclers are just aghast. But basically, they just settled down, and the emirs went on fighting one another for land and territory, as usual, making treaties with the crusaders against one another. It took, was the second crusade uh, that um, convinced them that the Franks were a bit of a, um, a menace. And even then, it took Nur ad-Din and Salah ad-Din a huge Herculean effort to get the idea of jihad off the ground. The idea was dead. It had died. Um, and it was revived, and it's never gone away again, as the result of a sustained Western assault. Now, jihad. Again, people seem to think that the Quran is maniacally intent on jihad. In fact, the word jihad and its derivatives occurs only uh, 44 times in the Quran. And in, uh, only, in only 10 of those cases does it refer unequivocally to warfare. Um, and so, um, it, because it, you, you, it's a struggle, the word means struggle, and an effort, an endeavor, and it is a struggle to give people who are hungry uh, something to eat when you yourself 
have very little. This is a struggle, as just as much as fighting may have need, needed to be. Now, <clears throat> the same applies uh, today with our... Let me just take the phenomenon of suicide bombing. Uh, suicide bombing, people have said to me. In fact, uh, I think my former editor at uh, Vardley Head said in worried tones, well, Karen, they did it for God, don't they? Uh, really, I, I'll tell you, I tried for seven years as a nun to do things purely for God, and I found it completely impossible. Uh, this is not the way our human motivation works. Uh, but, in fact, suicide bombing was the invention of the Tamil Tigers, uh, a virulently secular organization, um, and um, the, 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 though it first hit the world uh, in the Middle East with a Shiite um, uh, attack in Lebanon, um, there, in fact, most of the attacks, uh, the suicide attacks in Lebanon during the 1980s were committed by secularists, socialists and secularists from Syria. Only about seven were committed by uh, Muslims, and it was about 27 by, by these secularists. Uh, Robert Pape, a scholar in, um, in, in, in Chicago University, has made a study of every suicide uh, bombing attack from um, <clears throat> 1980 to 2004. And he concluded that, uh, it has not, that this has nothing to do, as he said, and I quote him here, with Islamic fundamentalism or any religious tradition for that matter. Uh, it occurs when uh, the, um, a people see that what they regard as their homeland invaded by a foreign power, usually a foreign power with great superior weaponry, a superpower, in fact, like the Americans and also like the Israelis. Um, and so uh, it is, it is and that is certainly the case with the Tamil Tigers too. Um, the, um, so if you look, if you listen to the uh, martyr videos made by Hamas before they gave it up, it's really interesting to see how these young kids segue quite naturally and easily from we're going now to meet the Lord of the Worlds, a typical Muslim, into we are doing this for the liberation of Palestine, then into a third world spiel about how they want to be a vanguard of people who are all the people who are oppressed by Western imperialism, back to God, back to... It, it segues uh, completely between the three. People have, uh, forensic scientists have done um, uh, surveys uh, on, uh, on, on survivors of suicide attacks, and one in particular, a forensic a psychologist who's also a former CIA officer, uh, interviewed all the surviving members of the 9-11 uh, uh, attack involvement uh, in prison. And he found that of those, only about 25% had had a regular Muslim upbringing. Uh, most of them had been to secular schools. A lot of them had been non-observant before they sort of arrived at, at this horrifying um, uh, decision. 
and um, many were converts. And he concluded that really uh, the problem was not Islam, but rather ignorance of Islam. And many of them only start reading the Quran seriously when they're in prison. Uh, just uh, uh, in, just in, in July, two of the young men who left Birmingham to go to Syria uh, and who pleaded guilty to terrorist charges in, uh, just a couple of months ago uh, had ordered from Amazon uh, two books. One was Islam for Dummies. The other was the Quran for Dummies. Um, and so um, the, uh, this is, I think, I can see I'm coming to the end of my uh, uh, sort of 20 minutes. So there's so much to say. But um, I w- one of these surveys has concluded that by far the uh, biggest motivating force, uh, it, especially for young people in Saudi Arabia, going first to the Soviet war, uh, in, in Afghanistan, then to the Al-Qaeda camps, was always the spectacles of Muslim suffering that were being beamed into their uh, homes almost nightly uh, in, um, on the television, uh, from Chechnya, from Palestine, from Lebanon, uh, the Sabra, in the 1980s, think of all the things that happened, the Sabra and Shatila massacre, uh, the, um, and every single one of them uh, was saying that, that they, they wanted to go to help their brothers and sisters. It's much the same impulse that made Jews from all over the diaspora flock to Israel in 1967 at the start of the Six-Day War. And, um, or in 1938, when young men upped and went to the Spanish Civil War to fight the fascists. That same desire, young men like fighting, that, that there is that too. Young men, and one uh, our ho- fellow host on Start the Week the other morning, a military historian, said uh, boredom is one of the main, main factors that drives people to war. But also in the Muslim world, this concern uh, for the suffering of Muslims. We don't see these images. We might see the odd one or two. But I've seen the, uh, some of these promotional videos. And you, there are piles of dead bodies here. There are uh, Israeli sh- soldiers harrying children. There are houses being bulldozed. There are massacres. Uh, Chech- horrifying scenes in Chechnya. Women being raped uh, by the Russian troops, etc. And among these young people, a sense of acute shame that their governments were doing nothing about this. Um, and a sense that that's, that that's the whole, a sense of huge humiliation that the that this could be happening to their brothers and sisters worldwide, um, and, uh, and and nothing was being done. The world let, was letting it happen, um, and so uh, it's it is unfortunate, therefore, that the Iraq War, when it came, just let forth a whole new range of images of suffering, for which, I th- just think of Abu Ghraib, for which the West w- was not just implicated, but that it was directly responsible. So, and interestingly, at this, at these, at this early stage, when these people were being recruited, there was very little anti-Americanism. 
they would say, we did not go because of the Americans, or we went to help the people but not to fight. I didn't know how I would help the people, but I wanted to help. Um, and uh, it's the, the, the indoctrination uh, came in the, in the camps of, in, of, in Al-Qaeda. Six American Muslims from Buffalo, New York, uh, actually left the camp because they were so shocked by the anti-Americanism there. So um, I think we should bear that in mind, perhaps, as we start these airstrikes, uh, remembering that, this, that this, these images of suffering are one of the biggest motivators that drive young men to war uh, at, this, at, this, at this time. Uh, and um, so I now look forward to some discussion about this, first with, with you, Tom, and then with the rest of you. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Karen. I'm sure we will come back to um, ISIS or ISIL and, and also the notion of jihad, but I wanted to start by taking you back really to your, to your motivation. When I was reading this book, um, I got a very strong sense. It's a very combative book uh, in a good way. It feels as though you've said, right, the retreat has gone on long enough. We're going to dig in here and we're going to fight back. I'm curious as to who is it that you see in the trenches over there on the, on the enemy lines, as it were? I, I, I really hope I don't see anybody as enemies. Uh, well, opponents then, op- but to, opponents. to use a less... Well, basically, I, I, I say at the beginning of the book that every time I jump into a London taxi, uh, the cabbie says, what do you do for a living? And I blench slightly uh, because I know what's coming. And sometimes I'm just tempted to say I'm a typist or something. But um, and he nearly always says religion has been the cause of all the major wars in history. I'm, the, sure, I'm sure we've all been irritated by, by simplifications, but it's a, it's a long way to go. It's a very, very big and very scholarly book yes. to refute the... But, that, but look, this, is, this happened, this is, this is repeated like a mantra by all kinds of uh, people who should know better. I mean, even people, dare I say it, who work for the Guardian newspaper have taken this, uh, taken this really quite combative line uh, that, uh, you know, Muslims are really, they've, they've failed to uh, modernise, they're stuck in this benighted religion. And I've been dealing with this now, you see, since 9-11. Do you and think there are no problems then with the Muslim religion as it is now? No more, than, no more than any other. They're, you see, you're thinking of well, the Muslim you, religion. No, no, but, but, but equally I would say there might be problems with other religions too. Do you, you, uh, you, take it, you don't think that there's no problems with religion because you've written yourself at other times yes. about the cruelties that it can inflict through yes. piety. Um, this book contains many, many instances. Um, so where for you does accusation stop and defence begin? I think the thing to do is remember what I said at the beginning, uh, that religion isn't this sort of essence uh, on its own, like a chemical, and you pop it into something and goes, <laughs> you know, keep it out of politics. It, it transposes, it goes through everything, and politics, for example, and warfare. Uh, every state ideology before the modern period was permeated with religion. Therefore, uh, as the war, as, as, as the state, pre-modern state... Uh, cannot exist without warfare uh, and, and without, I didn't get on to the whole structural violence of the pre-modern state 
in which uh, a small elite, 5% of the population, an aristocracy, uh, suppress uh, 90% of of the people, take their agricultural surplus from them, force them to live at subsistence level and use this to fund their um, their, their, their uh, cultural achievements. So, uh, warfare is part of that. You make a good case. I mean, you start, you start in Iraq, essentially, I mean, the crucible for, for much of this, but a long, long time ago. You begin with Sumerian agrarians and Aryan pastoralists and so on, and the, and the conflict between them. And you suggested at the beginning that religion emerges as an attempt to tame violence. No, instance. religion no? doesn't emerge. You're still thinking in terms of religion as something separate. Uh, it, All right, then its first instinct is to no, tame it, and no, curb. No, it, it, it is not an it <laughs> that is separate. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it is more a mood. If you'd said to the Sumerians, what is religion, they would have looked at you blankly. All right, but it's a highly specific mood in, in certain times, isn't it? And it's a mood which is then uh, collected together in scriptures. Well, some of it is, but if you look at the scriptures, like uh, the, the, look at the Hebrew Bible... Uh, it's full of a whole lot of stuff. I mean, Japanese uh, scholars have looked at it and they can't find any religion in it. Um, it all seems to be about history and uh, all kinds of other things. Um, I, you, I mean, you say that as a, as a scholar of comparative religions. Yes. But it's not something that many of faith would say about their scriptures. Not now, no. No. Not but isn't that, isn't that where the problem arises? I think, too, you've got to see that there has been a... Uh, a complete. We are now reading our scriptures in the modern period with a literalism that is without precedent in religious history. The whole idea of reading uh, scripture uh, in a literal manner it goes back only to the 1870s in well, 1870s in the uh, 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 in the United States. It begins, um, and you would never Muslims would never have read the Quran on its own. It, it always had to be read through the filter of uh, the imams and their and their sort of the, 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 their, their their highly elaborate interpretations. Similarly, Jews don't read the uh, Bible by itself; uh, they d- read it through the lens of the Talmud and that whole. Uh, sort of mass of, juris, of Jewish which, jurisprudence. Which doesn't mean that the lens can't be lethally distorting, though, of course. does it? I mean, you, uh, just to cite something that you uh, taught me about reading your book, Peter the Venerable, um, setting off the First Crusade, expressed the hope that King Louis of France would kill as many Muslims as Moses and Joshua had killed mm-hmm. Amorites and Canaanites. It doesn't matter whether he's thinking that's literally true or only metaphorically true. It is still a lethal doctrine, yeah. and it still s- sacralizes it, violence. It's not a doctrine. Well, um, um, it's not a doctrine. A narrative, then. Uh, it's a narrative, uh, which, of course, the rabbis uh, completely eviscerated in the Talmud. They, they turned Joshua, for example, and David into earnest, nonviolent Torah scholars uh, to try to take the violence that had led to the, uh, the, the anti-Roman riposte. Uh, but you see, uh, you've all, Bernard the Ven- was Peter the Venerable was not thinking of Jesus saying "love your enemies," uh, also in Scripture, uh, or Jesus saying, "you know, forgive and turn the other cheek." Uh, he chose to go to that because he was filled with righteous wrath against the the uh, the heathen. 
uh, who are Rob's... different, who are differently, who are ethnically different, and far superior to. They, there was the same resentment of Islam, which is a far more superior it's civilization dangerous. as there is now in the third world the resentment of the United States. Part of the problem, though, is that you don't necessarily have to have the racial difference, do you? Uh, you write very interestingly about the Brahmins. I mean, it's similar to, to mm. that attempt in Judaism to, to, as it were, take the violence out of the mm. scriptures. And the Brahmins attempt something similar with the Vedic texts. They come along and they say, right, we've got to make these, le- you know, as it were, too much damage is being done. We have mm. to take the violence out. The problem was that, I mean, you write this, some renounces broke even more completely with the Vedic system and were denounced as heretics by the Brahmins. Yes. And we all know what you can do to heretics. Yes. And, and so, so there's a problem in the, 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 na- the natural schismum, schismatic nature of religion. No, it's just, look, the, her- the heretic in uh, the modern secular nation state has been replaced by the ethnic minority. Um, very often these heretics were not... They didn't have uh, theological differences. Uh, they, they were mostly, uh, especially in Europe, they were protesting against uh, the, 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 in, the structural injustice that was emerging there, and, and therefore they're cut down. Uh, Henry VIII and Elizabeth all persecuted uh, Catholics because they were traitors to the state. But why, why were they conceived of as traitors to the state? Because the state was developing uh, sovereign powers. And in the pre-modern, before the early modern period, n- the ruling class expected to have a different religion from the masses. Yes, but, but it still doesn't get you around the fact that their only, their only uh, ac- traitorous action is to believe something different. No, it isn't. No, 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 it isn't. Uh, it really is not. Most people Well, to don't... owe their allegiance as it were, to a different authority, let's, and let's, that's, let's that's ha- worrying. Let's have a look at the Sunni Shia thing. That's not about doctrine at all. Uh, there's virtually no theological difference between the Sunni and the Shia. It begins as a, a profound political uh, uh, dispute as to who should lead the Muslim Ummah. It's um, about lineage, isn't it? And, and It's not just about lineage, it's about justice. And you have the, the complication that the Muslims were developing an empire. An empire uh, was considered, strange as it may seem to us, to have been the, uh, the best way of keeping the peace. Because it meant that uh, you have a supreme power that is able to uh, hold warring aristocracies in check. Uh, and the Muslims had to do this. But this was utterly against the egalitarianism of the Quran. And so there were people, not just Sufis too, uh, philosophers too, all protesting against, against this. And the Shia is, is, is a piety of protest, of disciplined protest against the injustice of mainstream Muslim society. Um, you, you do. You make a very good case, I think, that um, if, you're to, if you're to make the case that religion is inherently uh, violent, you have to selectively quote, because every single scriptural tradition will have a contradiction we are violent creatures we are violent therefore creatures. us therefore our scriptures but can are i violent. can i just ask you something about uh, the, that distinction between as it were the, the moral and ethical components of all the major religions and the elements that uh, repeatedly in history cause uh, violence and cause cause you know violent conflict and it's supernatural belief um, i wondered from your knowledge of history, has there ever been a violent doctrinal dispute over what it means to be generous to the poor, say? 
Uh, well, actually, most of the early heretics, as I mentioned in the book, in Europe, were protesting against the, the, the aristocracy, who were at that point creating a, a full-blown uh, empire. Uh, so, the there Buddh- is, so then there's a... The- yes, and then the Buddhists uh, and the Confucians are very much about the golden rule. And they are creating, throughout the, a major theme in this book has been the constant attempt to create alternatives to the violence of the state in the Buddhist Sangha, uh, deliberately designed in many ways to, um, to sort of uh, challenge the aggressive ethos of the court. Yoga is very much about getting rid of the aggression um, and, and, and then the, uh, or, or, or in, in the mind, uh, the egotistic me-first drive that makes us love fighting and combating, even verbally. And then uh, you have, and, and then the Buddha sends them out to work for the good and welfare of, of humanity. Uh, the, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran, uh, the Quran is an outcry against the structural injustice that is emerging in capitalist Mecca. So, uh, and my favourite story, and I told it to you the other the morning, uh, is, is Ashoka, um, a, first, a third century emperor BCE in India who uh, was a cruel man. He came to power uh, by killing two of his brothers. Um, but he went on, he accompanied the army when it, when it was putting down a, a rebellious city, and he was appalled by the violence that he saw. He was horrified by seeing all these peasants uh, being carted off away from their families to work land elsewhere in the empire. And he put up throughout his domains... Uh, inscriptions on huge rock faces and massive cylindrical pillars that were uncovered in the 19th century, calling out for justice, for kindness to the poor, for tolerance, uh, for recognizing uh, that all sects were equally valid, all teachers must be listened to, not even those deemed heretical by the Brahmins. Uh, this is, uh, uh, and he, he is going to create clinics for the poor. He is going to put up shade trees for the refreshment of animals and humans alike, but he can never disband his army. And he cannot send back, repatriate all those peasants that he's uprooted because they are essential to the agrarian economy. Now, this is the dilemma of civilization, and that's why these uh, people say scornfully, well, you know, these people like Buddhists, they, they were never able to succeed. Uh, that is that, but they kept up this uh, this this alternative vision, this alternative outcry, um, and that's what we must do now in our secular world: create mythologies, just as they did in the uh, in the best of the scriptures, uh, right from ancient Mesopotamia, that made the people aware told stories and myths that made people aware of the profound injustice and violence that was being done to the poor and the peasants. Can I ask why you think the mythology is necessary uh, rather than just the golden rule? The golden rule is absolutely fine. Um, I, I, I think if we could just all do that, and in whatever we did, and in any walk of life that we happen to find ourselves, in every all day and every day, not just when we feel like it. You know, I've done, well, that's my good deed for the day. Uh, no, all day and every day. That's what Confucius said. Then I think we'd have a peaceful world. And if well, we, but, but but the thing about the golden rule is the golden rule will never will never license an act of violence. 
A belief in a supernatural God can and yes. has done repeatedly. Ah, but we have a very, very uh, primitive view in the modern world of what we mean by the supernatural, um, to be honest. I mean, Thomas Aquinas and uh, Meister Eckhart would have been turning in their graves um, if, they, if they could hear the way we speak about a supernatural God. It, this is, again, one of the unique things that we, we developed with our scientific uh, but theory. Again, wouldn't that be precisely one of the arraignments against religion? Is that, of course, there would be no problem if we were all theology scholars. But the, that's, we were why all subtle need, and... that's why you need mythology. Because a myth, we, you see, this is one of the words that has been absolutely degraded in our modern ethos. A myth is something that isn't true, we say. A politician, if asked, accused of a peccadillo in his past life, will say, oh, it's a myth, it didn't happen. Uh, in fact, a myth, and I've written a whole book on this, uh, a myth... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to quarrel with you, your a, definition a, a, of myth. A myth is, uh, some, it tells a story of something that in some sense happened once, but which also happens all the time. It is uncovering a timeless truth uh, that, we, uh, that, that goes beneath uh, everyday perceptions, but that lies at the heart of the reality as we see it, but does it in a guise that, uh, that makes it accessible to people. Furthermore, a myth makes absolutely no sense unless it is put into practice. It's a program for action. So when you read the myths of Greek and Rome, for example, it's not going to hit the solar plexus. But when a myth is, translate, is made alive, brought alive, say, in a ritual, or is in an ethical practice that... Uh, is in, incarnated in a person's life, then you discover the truth of the myth. But it's no good looking at these myths uh, uh, and saying, well, it, 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 this, this doesn't work. A myth is a call for practical action. And unless you do it, you don't get it. Could we phrase this slightly differently then, in a way we can probably both agree, which is uh, the problem isn't religion, it's religious people. Or rather, to make it as it were, completely uncontentious. The problem is people who are absolutely certain that they are right. I, well, there are, po- there are plenty of secular politicians or even... Of course, even, no, no, I was, I was, I was expanding um, the definition who, to bring them in. Uh, who who uh, think they're absolutely right. I, I, I think the problem is with us all, never mind religious, secular or religious. Look, have, have, have things got greatly better since we chucked religion out of politics? Um, do, is there less unkindness, less cruelty, less uh, insouciance about the, sub, the poor? Uh, are we, uh, do we just not just re- retire to our comfortable homes and, to, and, and say, I don't, want to, I don't want to see this news about that earthquake or this particular catastrophe here? Uh, the the Muslim, Muslim scholar in Lebanon in the, in the uh, 1980s accused the West of maintaining an arrogant silence in face of the third world. So um, it, I, I think the problem is with all of us. We are all violent people. We're all deeply selfish people. Uh, we, uh, we love to hate people because it makes us feel good. I call my book on compassion 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life because we are addicted to our pet hatreds. We don't know what we'd do without them. We depend upon them for our sense of self. Um, and um, you, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous. You have to wean yourself from these hatreds gradually. It's um, all about me. You brought me round to another, uh, another 
uh, element on, as it were, what the, uh, the charge sheet against religion. And that is that it does provide an identity. And it will sometimes provide an identity when there is no other perceivable difference between a people. I mean, you write rather interestingly about this in the Peasants' War, Catholic and mm. Protestant villages uh, dropping their differences because they see that there is an overwhelming interest they both have in, and, in fighting against injustice. And similarly, the kings. Uh, the kings, uh, monarchs, were all in the wars, so-called wars of religion, Catholic and Protestant, constantly uh, fighting uh, their co-religionists and, um, and, and, jo- and joining up with one another. So uh, what about this? Well, what, do, what, what about the it? it what are, the point I'm trying to make is that once, once either the, the, kind of Protestant, the peasant revolution has failed or those interests or you know, things get back to normal, those differences will re-emerge as a cause for violence and conflict but you see, in themselves. No, I mean, this happens in... Surely you can see this in India where you can see people and you think it is inconceivable from the outside... Uh, what differences there is between them. There isn't a difference. There isn't a difference in their condition of life. There isn't a difference in their uh, exploitation, their economic dependence. The only difference is that one is a Hindu and one is a Muslim. Yes, and that was something that engineered, as I explained in my book, uh, with with British colonialism. Of course, we may be guilty of it, but it remains... It was a tool that they were able to use. Now it is. Uh, you see, and I think that one of the things that secular, secularization has done uh, throughout in, in the Middle East um, and, and in colonial countries, secularization has often been imposed so violently that it has damaged, pushed people into a violent riposte. The Shahs used to go out with their soldiers, sending their soldiers out with their bayonets, taking the women's veils off them in the street and ripping them to pieces. In 1935, Shah Reza Pahlavi gave his soldiers orders to shoot at hundreds of unarmed demonstrators in one of the holiest shrines of Iran who were peacefully protesting against obligatory Western dress. Hundreds were killed that day. Nasser interred thousands of members of the Muslim Brotherhood in jail, to jail, often without... Uh, mostly without trial and often for doing nothing more incriminating than handing out leaflets. That was where you have the ideology of Sayyid Qutb emerging. Um, And in in every um, fundamentalist movement that I've studied in Judaism, Christianity and Islam, this uh, defensive religious repast has always begun with what is perceived to be an assault by an aggressive secularization. Is there not also a form of secular nationalism that says, well, we don't want to extinguish the signs of your religion. You're free to carry Mm. it on. Yes. But you must tolerate all other religions. Mm. Yes. And that operates pretty well, actually. Yes. Uh, But we've been fortunate. It's, you know, we've been very fortunate in our part of the world. Um, we, We had our violent wars... Uh, and that modernity was ours, it was something that grew organically. In other parts of the world where it's been imposed on all our ideas about democracy uh, are imposed, A, as a foreign import, and B, ring rather hollow when we uh, have been um, supporting people like Saddam Hussein and the Shahs of Iran who deprive their people of basic human rights. When the human rights uh, ethos was developed by people like Locke, 
uh, in the early modern period, these human rights did not apply to the people in the uh, new world that we were just about to colonize. As Locke said, uh, the champion of toleration and the champion of human rights, he said that a master had absolute and despotical power over a slave and could kill him at any time, and that the kings, as he called them, of America had no right to their land. Um, this is something one should point out, it has also been said by... Yes. With, with religious backing and scriptural yes, backing. That's what we, so it's no better, are we? No, it's no better. No, it's we're no better. So, you, you know, uh, you know every, we're also proud of our human rights. Just remember that. Um, and, re, you know, that this rings hollow when we have, have, sanction, have just turned a blind eye uh, to, uh, to, to, to dictators who have happened to... Would you uh, rather be... live in a theocracy or in No, I a... have n- I've, I've had no... I, I have no desire to live in a theocracy, and but I don't like living in a secular society which uh, sneers at religion or, is, or sneers at other, um, other cultures. No, I can understand that, but why don't you want to live in a theocracy? Because I, I lived as a nun for a, seven years, and that was quite enough, believe me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think it's good. I say that in the book quite clearly. It's good for religion to get it out of politics, to get it out of the, the meshes of the state. And, and, and I think religion is at its best not when it gets tied up with the state, uh, with all the injustices and violence that a state, any state will commit, uh, no, uh, no state in the world has, has not got blood on its hands, however secular it is. Uh, but it, the, it, I think re- the religion has a role in standing up like the prophets of Israel, uh, like, the, like the Buddha, constantly bearing witness to the suffering and pain and saying to the king rulers in power, you are the man, you know, don't, don't do this. That should free religion for that... Uh, if religion is freed from being tied up with the ghastly mechanisms of the state, then it can perform a prophetic role. OK, well, I don't want to hog uh, all of the questions. I'm conscious that people want to come in. I'm sure we'll come back to other things, the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, everybody expects the Spanish Inquisition uh, tonight. Um, I want to ask you one last question. I'm springing it on you slightly, and I, we're not in, a, in front of a hostile audience. I wonder, you know, it's a long business writing a book like this. Um, I wonder where you think your argument is at its weakest. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I look at a, a book and I think it's all weak. Um, I, I, ha- I, I come away from a book always feeling it could all have been better. Um, so um, I, uh, you do what you can and there comes a point when you give it up but you always know that it could have been better. Okay, it doesn't read weak anyway. Thank you. Uh, Would you mind pouring me some water? Of course, yeah. I've got my... Um, So we'll throw it open for questions from the floor. Um, If I could ask you, um, when I point you out, if you could just wait until the microphone reaches you. And up in the top gallery there, there are microphones, I think, there and... I don't know whether... No, it's just there. Uh, So I'm afraid you have to go and queue up to that microphone because there isn't one that's kind of moving around. Uh, So... If you would like to ask some questions. Uh, yes, uh, up at the back there. And, and uh, I'm going to take this question here and then, and then from you. Yeah. So I've done that the wrong way around. Why don't you go first? Because you've got a microphone. <laughs> Karen, listening to 
you, you seem to argue, um, you speak in psychological terms and you argue for a humanism. Why do we need a God? We probably don't. Buddhists do fine without one. Um, and uh, a God, again, is, is, is a, an example of how uh, inept our theological thinking is. I don't think we do need a God. But some people find it helpful. Uh, God is only a symbol of transcendence. Uh, that's, that's where it's, we've, we've, uh, our theology now is weak. People sort of think... Uh, we hear about God for the first time very often when we first learn about Santa Claus. And over the years, our idea of Santa Claus de- develops. But our, often in this, uh, our religion gets stuck at this rather infantile level. The Bible is only a kind of starter kit uh, for a, a, a sort of, that, that takes you as, 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 as uh, pre-modern uh, scriptural exegesis did, to take you beyond the literal text and into a sense of wonder and transcendence and awe. I think transcendence is a fact of life. But transcendence doesn't mean, it, it means something that we can never uh, describe or know. We all have moments of awe and wonder. And, uh, and I think that you can find that in, as, if you keep that sense of awe and wonder alive, especially uh, in, when we, in, in other people, uh, the, 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 the religions all tell us to look for the marvels in other people. And I think if we can see, as the, as the Hindus at their best do, when they join hands and bow, uh, they are acknowledging the divinity that they are meeting in the other. I, I, that's the way I see it. Um, I, I don't have... I, I long, the, the, the god of my childhood uh, dwindled very soon after I left my convent, but I've since found... Uh, the richness in the, the way that concept has been developed in a much in a sophisticated way that is often beyond uh, the sort of public discourse. Yeah. Uh, it, you don't mention obedience, which has been a central part of many religious traditions. Well, it's certain, probably because I, I, I tried to practice it myself as a nun. I was in the, uh, a Jesuit order, and obedience was the thing. Um, and um, and. Uh, I don't think, if you think, I, I, I decided this wasn't a very good idea. Um, I'm not a great fan of obedience. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I'll, I'll obey the police and the laws and that kind of thing, but slavish obedience to some guru uh, or my reverend mother, uh, I found simply destructive. I think Jesus was certainly not an obedient human being, neither was the prophet Muhammad, or the prophets of Israel were not obedient people. Uh, the Buddha was certainly not. He, the Buddha said he didn't approve of any kind of religious authority, the Buddha. Uh, he was against that, all, all that. When he, you know, his disciples said, how shall we live without you to tell us what to do? He said, you are yourself uh, your, your own leader and master. So no, I'm not very keen on obedience. It's more, St. Ignatius was a soldier, and, his, and he expected his religious... Uh, to, uh, to, to behave, to obey their superiors unhesitatingly as you would obey your commanding officer. Um, and we, it led us into all kinds of absurdities that, uh, was, that I've, not, I've not, not been obedient ever since. And, danger, and, <laughs> and dangers too, yes, at the back there. Um, if you'd been in the House of Commons last week before they voted, what would have been your advice to the MPs or what would you have told them they should have considered? Where are you? I'd like... Oh, 
just at the back. Oh, there. thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. You know, I've, I was asked this question last night, and I've, I've been thinking about it, of course, ever since the, since the debate last week. When I was with the United Nations uh, some years back, um, I was on a, um, a, a, a sort of rather pompously named high-level group, which was uh, supposed to diagnose the causes of extremism and give uh, advice to member states as to how this could be avoided. And we all decided, we were from all over the world, um, 20 of us, we said in our report uh, that unless there was a, um, as an equitable solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict an equitable on all sides to the, uh, to the Israelis and to the Palestinians, there will be no way of ameliorating this, this conflict. Anything else we recommend in the way of uh, uh, education, youth opportunities, immigration uh, policy, that will, none of that will work unless this gate, saw is developed. I think what we should do... Uh, you know, I just see these bombs will uh, sort of create more images of suffering and civilians will die and that will, you know, as I said earlier, will create more distress. Uh, though, I, I, though I don't know. Uh, this is this, the, I, I really, this is a really tricky one. But I think we've got, at the same time, to look at the discontent and the malaise and the distress in the Muslim world. Really look at it. Those images of Muslim suffering were what pushed the young men to go to Al-Qaeda. We've got to look at this. One of the things we should do, too, is really take note of the huge number of civilian casualties that are dying in our wars. I believe it's up to 90% of the people who are dying are civilians. And they are not mentioned. It's as though they don't matter to us. I think we must really... One of the things that we recommended was that we had uh, used modern communications to go uh, and take people's stories, people's stories on all sides of the conflict, uh, telling that you know, so letting them speak their distress and their sorrow and, and, ha- and how this has been for them, uh, and so that you have a collage on all sides of pain. Because very often when people tell their stories in public, even at, dare I say it, in a venue like this, someone will interrupt and say, actually, no, it wasn't like that, uh, you know, and then, and then sort of add a little sort of detail here or a factual error there. Any uh, psychiatrist will tell you that if someone's telling a story, uh, the factual is less important than the, what it's telling you about the turbulent emotion, the almost ungovernable grief pain and suffering that can easily segue into rage. And I think now it's a time, this is what the, the Buddha always said, and all the world religions in their own way have put suffering at the top of their agenda. In Christianity, you have the image of a human being flayed by human cruelty. Uh, the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the Buddha, uh, the first... The, the first uh, it, it, uh, noble truth is existence is suffering and that you must look at it on all sides, let it invade we must let this suffering in the Muslim world and in Africa too invade our hearts and make us uncomfortable um, and so I that think that's definitely a no vote 
I mean, to go back to the beginning of the question, isn't it? I you would have not voted for... I, I think so, I, yes. Uh, though though it not, would not be, have been an easy decision. Uh, yes. Uh, gentleman at the back there, yep. And am I missing anybody? It's sorry, hard to see. Mm. Oh, sorry. And, and, then to, and I'll then come to you, so, yeah. Sorry, yes, if you could ask your question. Uh, good evening. Um, where is there it? is an episode oh, of Yes, Prime Minister, where the central joke is that the Church of England is not a religious institution, but a social one. And, of course, we have often seen religion playing a role in non-religious affairs. For instance, the core foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood was as a support group for poor young Muslims uh, moving to the capitals in Egypt. And, of course, the Iranian ulama playing a major role in drafting the constitution in 1905 when the Qajar Shah was too busy kowtowing to Westerners. Um, could we not argue, therefore, that religion is just one strand of the intricate web that makes up social grievances and motivations to speak out in social grievances? And why, therefore, is religion the one that we choose to target? Well, that's, that's great. That's just what I've been trying to say all <laughs> evening. Um, so, uh, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Um, couldn't have put it better myself. Do you, <laughs> um, do you, do you ever uh, wonder about um, religion not as a cause of... You make a very good case for it not being the cause of uh, violence. There's always, as it were, secondary, other causes, underlying causes... Uh, what about the accusation that it's a lubricant towards violence? Uh, what that do you mean by lubricant? Uh, that it permits, that it gives license to people to uh, take actions which they might otherwise think twice about. Well, because it, it is a sacred duty to do it, or a sacred... Well, it can do, uh, but you'd have to, you have got a whole range of uh, ulama and people who would tell you that, you, that you're not correct in that. Uh, though they don't often get a voice. But also, it, secular ideologies ca can do this. Um, or just sheer, uh, uh, sheer nihilism, uh, where, people, where these young men are beating up old ladies and uh, raping them. And I, I don't think... They're not usually claiming that God has told them to do this, though some deranged souls may, may be. But uh, there, there is just... Well, then I'm trying to put... The, so uh, here, I'm clumsily trying to put yes. the argument that religion is very good at making otherwise good people do bad things. And, yes, and we do, we, the state, secular states, have also been very good at doing that, too. Um, you know, the beating people up in jails and, um, you know, disappear, people disappearing in jails, torture. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I've jumped in, but I, just before I go back, uh, I mean, it's, Turks, it's interesting in your book. Young you, Turks. But you uh, talk about those in terms of, you, you very often say uh, the state is converted into an idol, um, the, the nation is made a sacred object. So you, you talk of them almost as quasi Yes, religions. but it's, you see, you're still thinking about religion I am. in this. Yeah. this you know, <laughs> uh, we need, you need to get the lady up there to sort of put you right. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the point I'm making about an idol is that this is bad religion, whether it's an innate, whether it's a national idol or a religious idol. An idol in an idol, you are worshiping something human, or something hum that is human or limited. Whereas uh, an icon, 
uh, you look through the icon and see transcendence. That's what a religious icon or symbol is supposed to be. They're supposed to be transparent. When they become opaque and an end in themselves, whether they're religious or secular, they're not good things. Okay, you made that clear. We're not here for my religious education, and and I jumped in, I'm afraid, so if we could go back. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you not directly about religion, but about violence. Mm -hmm. And you said a number of times that, um, well, we're all violent. Um, We all like to hate. Well, there's actually a great deal of evidence that that's not true, Mm -hmm. that humans are hardwired for solidarity and Mm -hmm. sociability Mm -hmm. and cooperation, and violence is difficult. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, um, there was evidence, for example, psychological evidence from the 1950s that worried the American military because they found that a lot of soldiers in face-to-face combat tried to miss, tried to fire yes. to miss their opponents yes. and didn't want to kill them. And so violence is difficult and, uh, and people have to be persuaded to be violent and have to overcome yes. inhibitions to violence. And I think in a way it's not unlike perhaps the, the point Tom made just now, that, that religion might, amongst many other things, racism uh, would be another one, uh, religion, amongst many other things, might be a way of creating difference between people in which you, you see the opponent as someone who it is legitimate to kill. Now, in your response just now to Tom, I think you started to make a distinction between good and bad religion. So your answer was, ah, yes, but if religion permits that, it's bad religion. But surely you've got to take religion in the round and say, well, this is, this is what religion can do. Well, you see, there isn't an it. But uh, I entirely agree with you about... Uh, uh, about the, uh, the, I have actually talked about all this. About this, we, there seems to be an evolutionary uh, mechanism uh, that uh, that makes us extremely reluctant to kill our own kind because obviously it's not smart to kill off your species if you wanted to survive. And we are certainly wired for empathy. Um, and you're certainly right, and I do talk about this. We just have touched on it tonight. Uh, that in order that to, in order to kill a soldier has to uh, become sort of almost in, dehumanized in a way uh, it do, um, and hence the, the, the training with uh, not dissimilar to the sort of training we were given in my convent, I have to say of to be uh, to sort of um, just uh, uh, sort of depersonalized and told to do one thing one day and then another thing the next day and that kind of thing, so that you become uh, uh, sort of a, a, an automatic, you will perform automatically on the battlefield, certainly. And certainly, whoops, uh, certainly religion uh, has been used for that, but so have other national differences too. What we have to do, really, is to make the enemy inhuman so that we don't kill him or her. Um, and uh, so, uh, so that process of dehumanization, we have to dehumanize ourselves in order to fight them, to shoot at them directly. Hence, the, the boon to uh, warfare of modern weaponry that means you can kill at a distance and not see the result of your ac- actions. They found in World War II that, uh, that, that people who could see their their the people they were killing suffered huge guilt. But as you went up in the air and got higher and higher and you didn't see them, uh, that, that re- reluctance went. This is all, you're quite right to bring this out, thank you. Uh, this is all com- very complicated. And, we ha- uh, and uh, religion has been used for that. But so have other, other non-religious 
uh, anti-religious um, uh, ideologies. Uh, yes, if I can come to the front row there, and then there's a gentleman up there, and then there's a gentleman here. Um, so. I'll, yeah, I'll come to you in a bit. When you get the microphone, um, yeah, so just in the front row here, yeah. Hi, Karen. Um, oh. Taken from the Gospel of um, John, dear children, do not love with words and speech, but love with action and in truth. Um, could we not say, you spoke about exclusivity earlier, about well, uh, suggesting my religion is right. Can we therefore not argue that modernity has an issue with this. What's wrong with saying my religion is right or my tradition is right, but your tradition is also right? Mm-hmm. Or be it somebody who belongs to a formal faith or no faith. What's wrong with that? Quite. I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and I think rightness, however, once you, you start, start thinking you're right, whether you are a secularist or a, a religious person, you start uh, getting... it's very easy for us to interject ourselves into our opinions and and, and, and make them into something absolute. Um, I'm not a a great fan of opinion in religion um, because uh, most uh, most religious practice uh, has been about doing things. Uh, uh, Look at the, the, the five pillars... It's about fasting, almsgiving, going on the Hajj, and even the uh, what we call the profession of faith. It's an attitude of commitment. I bear witness that there's no God but Allah, and the, the Muhammad is his prophet. It means you're not erecting it, any other God, any other ideology or ambition uh, above the divine, and you will show that in every one of your actions, bearing witness to that. So mo- religion is provides a form of um, practical knowledge like driving or swimming. Uh, You can't learn to swim simply by reading a couple of texts. You have to get into the water and learn to uh, float. Um, And similarly, religion, as I said earlier about mythology, if you don't do it, you don't get it. Um, And so it's less about being right, but about doing things that that should at its best, enlarge the heart. But, of course, a lot of people don't really want to have their hearts enlarged. Whether they're religious or secular, they'd rather uh, be right um, and, uh, and, and inject their egos with that. That's, that's a temptation for anyone, whatever their, their beliefs or lack of them. Uh, yes, at the back there, and then I'll come to you, sir, on the front row there. Uh, thank you. Are we born good or bad? Oh, goodness me. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, uh, it's hard for me to say. I, uh, I don't think so. I, don't, I, don't, I think we are born um, neutral. I don't believe in original sin, for example. Uh, that was St. Augustine's view um, and, and is not adopted by most of the... Uh, the, the Christians, in fact, uh, in, in other parts of the world, apart from the West. Um, I think we can be born, and we're made damaged, I think, with what happens to us. Now, there may be pathological states that we, we may have uh, problems with, you know, whether we're born, something is wrong with our brain or, or, or sickness that makes us act in ways that we say are bad. Uh, but I think... 
uh, I think things happen to us that make us bad. And we often al- allow it to make us bad. Uh, you know, you can brood on sorrow. And now it's, it's all right for me to say this because I've had a, an extraordinarily privileged life. But I often wonder if I were uh, living in Africa or, uh, or, or a place where there's no clean water or living under a dictatorship or living in poverty while I can see on, on the television that there are people living in absolute... I can imagine myself becoming a terrorist. Um, you know, I mean, it's easy for me to say... You know, I've, I've, because here we all are in this privileged place, allowing we're allowed to say whatever we want. We're going to go. I'm going to be sent home in a nice car and go to my nice little house. Uh, this is privilege beyond belief. Um, and I have a friend in Pakistan who does a lot of work with me, and he says it's just an accident of fate that I was not born the son of a rickshaw driver. And that what, you know, I could, would be filled with, I'm, he's filled with rage as it is about the idiocy that's going on. But we, in that situation, we don't know what we'd be like. Um, and I think always that, that kind of humility uh, of to say, goodness knows what, uh, what, how any of us would maintain all these wonderful standards and ideals that we have in conditions of extremity. Uh, yes, in the front here. How do you feel about Sam Harris's distinction between religion and spirituality? Um, I know a lot of people like this uh, distinction. Um, I, uh, I, I, I don't get it, I have to say, um, really. Um, a lot of people like to say, well, I'm not religious, you know, that's, uh, pretty, but I am very spiritual. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a certain sort of congratulatory element in some of it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not in, really in favour of... Uh, I, I think... Uh, who knows? I, I'm not, you know, dousing everybody who says that, obviously, because I, who, who do, what do I know? But uh, the, I, I think some of the traditions, as they've developed, ask hard things of you, like love your enemy. Like, uh, give what you have, even when you have little yourself, to, su- to someone who else who is in need. Um, uh, these hard things, to go out into the world, says the Buddha, uh, and don't just sit hugging your nice, warm, spiritual glow. Uh, you, you, asso- you associate those hard questions with religion, not with spirituality. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't see it. the difference, yeah. really. But some people like to make that difference because they hate religion, and, but they can bask in being spiritual. But I think if you're hating anybody or anything, you're not really spiritual. Uh, yes, there's a lady at the back there, and then uh, the gentleman immediately in front of her. I don't know whether I'm neglecting this side, but I shout at me if I am. Yes, I'll come to you. You, s- yep. you said um, Where is the she? majority of suicide bombers are... I'm here. Okay, yes. <laughs> the majority of suicide bombers are secularists. Uh, no. Yeah, but go on. Is that not what you said? Uh, no, I said not, they're, not very well, no, they're not very well up in Islam. Oh, I misunderstood. Oh, perhaps there's some questions. Uh, oh, I said some of the suicide bombers, yes. Uh, I'm the... just wondering what 
motivation could be sufficient for a secularist to be a suicide bomber? Love of the homeland, outrage, fury, a sense that, um, you know, that they're being done down again, their country's being taken away from them by people with, who live far away with vastly they, superior weaponry. there is no afterlife, you can never benefit from your sacrifice. Yeah, but, you know, if you're killing people, so there are some people who say you won't be getting a nice afterlife. Um, and um, I think the afterlife is a really bad religious idea myself. Um, I think that I, I, I'm perfectly happy to be agnostic about it. As, and it's only Christianity and Islam that go in for the, the afterlife. Um, um, do you think it's a bad idea or a dangerous idea? I think it can, it's, it, it's just like a bad idea, like it's a bad idea to sort of uh, have a, the, too much wine at night. It's not necessarily heinous. Um, but um, um, you... Uh, I think it can turn religion into a whole trip about getting into heaven and getting out of hell. My, my childhood was ruined by the afterlife. Um, I, I was convinced I was not going to, get to make it into heaven, and um, it seemed impossibly difficult and all too easy to go to the other place. I've been much happier since I decided that, you know, this is not really what I... But I have no idea what's going to happen to me. Um, you became a nun, so it suggests that you were prepared to go quite a long distance. I was, was, to... That was to try and get in yes, to heaven. Um, I think that rather answers the point, yeah. doesn't it? The, the, the... I, I went some distance, but then I came out again, you see. So I'd probably have turned away from the, from, from the, from the, from the target at the last and said, I don't want to do this. Um, uh, you see, these other things are also important. Being a hero in your own time being a hero to your friends. A lot of them, uh, the, the psychiatrists have seen, are, are in love with the idea of glory. Uh, the, the same the desire for glory that, uh, that always inspired warriors to go to war, normally. So the martyr's poster on the wall is more important than It's hugely paradise. important. It's hugely important to these young men in Gaza, living in refugee camps, in conditions of squalor and hopelessness, uh, to see themselves fated uh, in that time before they, they do that, where they become special and uh, intoxicated. And that's the kind of thing that we should be looking at, is that anomie and distress in these camps that would push people to this, this kind of extremity. Uh, I don't know whether you've got a microphone, have you? Because... Um, uh, oh, <laughs> I will come to you. We're running out of time, I'm afraid, and I know I've promised a couple of people here, one gentleman here, and then up, and then I think we'll be finished. Do you hold religion responsible for any violence at all? Um, yes, of course. Uh, but, it, you know, uh, we can say this, uh, but it's not, um, certainly. Um, but it's usually mixed up with a whole lot of other stuff, too. You rarely do things simply for religion. Think about your own motivation, even in important issues, like why you take that job. And, you know, you, you've got a whole lot of rational reasons, but there's all kinds of muddly little idiot, idiotic things, or why you're marrying this person, or why you go into a convent, indeed. I, it was certainly not... I mean, I, I was aware, painfully aware, there are a whole lot of other reasons that were dry, putting me in there that had nothing to do with religion. Pardon? Oh, but they were protesting... Um, they, were, they were protesting against dissidents more than their religious ideas. 
The Cathars were really were, were, were creating a huge. I write about them, of course, a huge social protest. Uh, they were preaching poverty, going back to apostolic property. Very embarrassing for the rich clergy who are all sitting in in wealth and palaces. They, they don't like this. This they is were dangerous. Really, very, religious and they're, in non, a different and they're sense. non-violent at a time when the Crusades are going on. Uh, they are eschewing all violence and giving their property to the poor, just as Jesus said. This is most uncomfortable, and they're getting a huge following, and, they are, and this is the time when the Pope is the monarch of Europe, Innocent III, uh, the Pope who achieved papal monarchy. So he was like the emperor. In, in, uh, after that, the papacy goes downhill and the, the secular... I'm just going to cut in on okay. Cathars because I'm, I'm conscious that we're running mm. out of time. I don't know whether you've got microphones yet there. Ah, yes, you have. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to your um, point earlier about um, ISIS, for example, mm. and, and in terms of a reaction to uh, Muslim suffering in the world. Um, and I just wondered whether that um, could become close to a justification for reaction, uh, reaction to suffering, and also in particular, the, the Muslim suffering that is reacted to is very selective. So there's, yes. not, there's not a lot of reaction, for example, to quarter of a million people killed in Syria who are mainly Muslims. Yes. Uh, most of the Muslims killed in Iraq were killed by fellow Muslims. Mm. Um, so, but in, in the way you described it, it seemed to me to be a bit closer to a justification for it. No, no. And, and is, isn't the fuel really ro- resentment ro- at the West rather than a genuine reaction to suffering? Uh, well, what again, what is a genuine reaction to suffering? Well, it, uh, can I just finish? Um, the, uh, when we say, oh, you know, that poor person, there's often an admire, it's a little bit of an, ourselves, they're admiring ourselves being terribly compassionate at this point. Um, and, there's a, and, and there's a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, it, 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 we can often project uh, you know, in our sympathy with us. All sorts of complicated things go on. Uh, I would say and there's certainly resentment of the West. That's certainly there. Also a sense of profound humiliation. Um, and uh, Because you have to remember that uh, the Muslims... I've said this so often this week that I'm wondering who I haven't said it to. But uh, the... Um, uh, Islam, before the colonialists arrived, was one of the great world powers, massive great world power, reduced overnight to a dependent block by the colonialists. And I say in the, when I'm in the United States, how are you going to feel in a few decades when you're overtaken by China? And there is a free song in the room. Um, and so... All these things are missed up. There's no such thing, I don't think, as just a pure empathic uh, yearning towards the other. It's mixed up with all kinds of things in our own psychology, political uh, muddles, a resentment of this. You're absolutely right. But that, that is something that they seize upon. It's not a justification for murder, but it's an explanation as to why young men go off. Uh, and leave home, one, one of the ones that has been empirically found by people doing surveys. Okay, uh, this gentleman here, yeah. Uh, just coming on from that, I understand and I appreciate that you have emphasized that the suffering of Muslims as a result of some of the actions by 
the Western powers has created a feeling and this resentment has boiled over and all that sort of thing. But I want to just link it to a slightly different one. If you look at the Muslim societies, all societies where Muslims are in majority, the first thing in most of them they do is they declare an Islamic republic. And it is written into the very structure, the foundation of an Islamic republic, that the rights of almost all the non-Muslims are either disregarded, ignored, or simply they are banished. So Islam, it comes back to Islam. If Islam is the authority which gives the Islamic state, whether it's Iran, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's Bangladesh, whether anywhere else, to make sure that the rights of non-Muslims are simply abolished, or if not, they are made into secondary. Mm. Yes. Just one second. Just, if, you could, second. if you could just be quick there, because we are running out of time. The problem at the moment is, I have great sympathy with the Muslim suffering, but the Muslims, wherever they are, they want to make sure that wherever they are a minority, there is no suffering inflicted on them. But wherever they are in a majority, they will come down like hammer and tongs and extinguish your rights. That's why I would say dissociate religion from political power. Because in Islamic world, this is inevitably going to mean that the non-Muslims will be either persecuted or be ignored or made second-class citizen. And that is justified by the holy book. Actually, it isn't. Uh, this, is, this, this was... Um, <laughs> This, this was uh, a ruling, uh, the, the, the whole, what you're thinking of the Dimi system, uh, in, in the, created in the 8th century by a jurist called Al-Shafi, uh, which was a typical, this applied to every single empire, uh, that there was, a, it had a dualist, every single empire, whether it was Persians, Romans, the lot, the imperial ideology demands three things. It demands, one, that you have a sort of a mission to the world. Two, that you, uh, uh, that you, there, you have a dualistic view of the world. Empire, and we are good. Others are second class. Um, and uh, the third is uh, that you are actually benefiting the whole of mankind by what you're doing. Everyone did this. The Romans, the, the, the lot. Uh, that, and so this was, this was a typical... It's not in the holy book. Uh, it is uh, the, the Quran is uh, ex- essential. Reach out to all tribes and nations. Uh, that there is uh, no compulsion in religion. Well, there's also the sword verse. Yes, I mean, so, so there are... that's when he was fighting. Uh, but there's one sword verse to much of the other, uh, the other stuff. The, tr- the trouble is that. People only read the sword first. Yes, and that's part of the problem, that these uneducated people who haven't read the whole Koran uh, therefore get tied up, on, and that's, that's a very convenient thing. You couldn't read the Koran in the old days. You listened to it, and you, you listened to what was the whole of the, of the scripture. So 
Um, this also applies to every single nation-state, too. And the Achilles heel of the nation-state has been its treatment of minorities. Uh, and there's, Lord Acton pointed this out in the late 19th century. He said that the, the, the stress on ethnicity, on a certain cultural allegiance, um, and on language um, it, it, that would make people who did not fit the national profile very vulnerable. And we've seen what happened at the, in the Holocaust, for example, uh, the most hideous example of what can happen when, uh, that, when the nation itself, uh, with this stress on ethnicity, language, and culture, becomes a, the supreme marker. Okay, uh, just very quick question. It'll have to be, I'm afraid. And a quick answer, I guess. Yeah, and a quick answer, yeah. What do you think of Caldaism? What? Caldaism. Never heard of it. What is ca- <laughs> <laughs> It's probably going to take too long to explain. Isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have to stop there because we, uh, we haven't finished, but we have run out of time. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.